Well, good morning. Let's open our Bibles together to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. Last Sunday, Pastor Armand kicked off a little mini-series that we're doing on what it means to follow Christ, what it means to be a disciple, the call to discipleship, and he opened up that classic passage of Matthew 28, 18 to 20, whereby the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, says that all authority has been given to him, and he now delegates that authority to us to go into the world and to take the good news of his salvation, uh, to do what work we've been called to, which is to make disciples, and that involves preaching the gospel to those who do not yet know Christ. When they do come to saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus, they see themselves as sinners before a holy God who cannot save themselves, and in brokenness and humility, just bow before the risen Christ and say, Lord, I need you, I need you to save me. That begins a whole new journey. We become new creatures in Christ at that moment. Um, We become followers or disciples, uh, which is a lifelong process then from the moment we are converted to Christ to the moment we either die and see him or we are alive when he returns and we see him. Uh, But when we see the Lord, we will be fully remade into his image. But in the meantime, there's a lot of work to be done in us by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, through his word. And we're going to think about that again this morning, uh, and specifically thinking about what are some of the costs uh, of following the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and read the passage. I want to back up, though, to verse 51 to get a little bit of context here. Luke 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The he in verse 51 is the Lord Jesus. So the timing here, the context, is when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, that is, be taken up back to heaven. So this begins now the journey to the cross, which will result in his death, his resurrection, and then 40 days later, his ascension to heaven. When those days were drawing near, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He focused on, okay, this is now where I'm going, the fulfillment of why I came. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, that's kind of an odd sentence, but we have to understand uh, the reason Luke says that the people didn't receive him because he was headed toward Jerusalem. Well, because he was headed toward Jerusalem, that meant that he and his followers were Jewish and the Samaritans were in conflict with the Jews. The Jews were in conflict with the Samaritans because the Samaritans were considered half-breeds. The Samaritans were born in the days of um, the, when, when God's people were taken into captivity and there was intermarriage between the Jews and the Assyrians and that produced the Samaritans. And so there was this prejudice against the Samaritans as being these half-breeds. And so they hate, uh, the Jews hated the Samaritans, the Samaritans hated the Jews. And so they, they see this group of Jewish men on their way to Jerusalem 
they don't receive them. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, that is, when, when they saw that the people were not receiving Jesus, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's what you call unchecked zeal. <laughs> that's what you call zeal. That's not yet been balanced by wisdom. But, you know, that's where they were at. They were on fire for the Lord, and they wanted to bring some of that fire down on the enemies. Um, but he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. There is no greater privilege or duty that exists for the Christian than to follow Christ with all of his heart. It is one reason Jesus died and rose again for us. The Apostle Paul makes this clear in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. Jesus died so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have been saved by placing your faith in the crucified and risen Son of God, then one of the reasons that God saved you is so that you would no longer live for yourself, but you would live for him. That you would give up your agenda for your life and bring it into humble submission to the new Lord of your life. This wholehearted devotion to live for the one who died for them empowered the early followers of Christ to forsake everything and to be willing to suffer for his name. For example, in Acts 5 and verse 41, it says the apostles were rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. The early disciples considered it an honor to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus. Acts 21, 13, Paul, uh, the apostle, when some of the brethren tried to persuade him not to go to Jerusalem, he said, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul could then say later to the Romans that he was committed to, to God's goal wholeheartedly, which was to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. There was this radical obedience in the early church and in the new believers to follow their new Lord 
which sets a pattern for the rest of us and uh, is affirmed by many of the letters that we find later on in the New Testament. But this morning, we want to look at this brief passage in the Gospel of Luke, and we want to notice the fact that there are hindrances that often prevent Christians from wholehearted devotion to Christ. That brings us then to our big idea, which is this. Following Christ means everything in your life must take second place. That's essentially what it means to be a wholehearted disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that there isn't anything else you do in your life or with your life. It's that everything you do in your life and with your life is secondary to the greatest duty and greatest calling and greatest honor and privilege that we have, which is to love Christ with all of our heart and to follow him in wholehearted obedience. So following Christ means everything in your life must take second place. And that big idea really helps us in life because every day we're faced with choices. Do we do this? Do we do that? And, and those choices are not necessarily good or bad, though there's rarely a neutral choice, but we do have to weigh the fact in, in either of these choices, am I being disobedient to Christ Or is one of them a better way for me to follow Christ in obedience? We're always making those horizontal decisions in life in light of this vertical relationship we now have with Jesus, who is our new Lord. And so it means then that everything is placed in second for us as Christians. Following Christ, loving Christ, obeying Christ is first. And in this passage here, verses 57 to 62, Jesus exposes three common hindrances that keep people from following Christ. Of course, this list is not exhaustive. There are many more reasons that uh, men and women and children do not follow the Lord. Uh, The reasons are really limited only by the imagination of our uh, rebellious hearts. But these are three common hindrances, or we might even say excuses, um, that keep people from following Christ wholeheartedly. And by identifying these common hindrances, we then also realize that there are exhortations that God wants you to pay attention to this morning. The first is this. Be attached to Christ more than earthly comforts. Following Christ with all of your heart means being attached to him and his will and and loving him and obeying him more than your attachment to earthly comforts. Notice the text, verses 57 and 58. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus never had a permanent home. Once his public ministry began, he was a nomad. He was a traveler with his disciples. He forsook 
earthly comforts in order to fulfill the will that God had planned for him. Now, it's interesting, the context, because we noticed earlier, a few verses up, that there was rejection in Samaria. And so there's a sense in which Jesus is not simply challenging this man to count the cost of whether or not he was willing to give up earthly comforts to be his disciple, but would he be willing to face the consequences of being rejected? Because that's what Jesus and his disciples are facing at this point. They've been rejected by the Samaritans. And so one of the hindrances that often keeps Christians from really being wholehearted followers of Christ is a fear of rejection. Why do we fear rejection? Well, it's usually tied to what we love. We fear rejection because we love man's approval. We don't like to be criticized. We like to be patted on the back. We like to be affirmed. We like people to agree with us. But there come points in time in our lives as believers, as followers of Christ, whereby we must face the reality that we may be rejected because of our connection to Jesus Christ. I think we're living in a culture where there are major shifts taking place whereby if you are not preparing yourself for rejection, then you are not going to be ready. And I believe that that's one of my responsibilities as your pastor is to prepare you well for suffering. And one of those aspects of suffering is rejection. The rejection that we will receive the longer we follow Christ and stand upon the truth of his word on apology unapologetically saying this is what God says and therefore it's what we believe and we by God's grace we are sinners who have been saved by God's grace and therefore we call you to come into this same gracious salvation that God has provided rejection is a price that man this man that Jesus is talking about too was unwilling to pay. He was unwilling to leave creature comforts in order to follow Christ. And many times that is the case in Christians because of a more intense love for the things of the world, an inordinate desire for the things of the world. 1 John 2 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Now, there's nothing in Scripture that says the earthly comforts that we enjoy are bad, that they're evil, and that it's wrong for us to enjoy those things. In fact, Scripture would teach the opposite, that every good and perfect thing we have has come from above. The problem comes when our affection for those earthly comforts becomes more important 
and greater than our affection for Jesus Christ and a willingness to forsake all to follow him. That's where the rub comes. And that's where we need to confess to the Lord inordinate affection for earthly things, earthly comforts. There's a second exhortation we need to pay attention to. Pursue obedience to Christ more than your earthly plans. This is verses 59 and 60, even though I know that the slide I created is wrong. So this is verses 59 and 60. Notice it says, to another he said, follow me. So to another guy, Jesus says, follow me. That's the invitation. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Context. In this day, it was customary for the time period to bury a parent to be about a year. And it's the the opinion of many conservative scholars that in addition to that, what we're dealing with here is probably a guy who's waiting for his inheritance. And he knows he doesn't get dad's inheritance until dad is gone. And so there's a sense in which he is saying, let me first go and wait for my dad to die to collect my inheritance and then bury him and then I might consider following you. William MacDonald says of this man, he called Jesus by the name of Lord, but actually he puts his own desires and interests first. The words Lord and me first are totally opposed to each other. We must choose one or the other. You can see that in verse 59. Lord, let me first. (laughs) He's calling him Lord, but he's not acting as though Jesus is his functional Lord. And are we sometimes guilty of that? Am I sometimes guilty of that? Are you sometimes guilty of that? Whereby we verbalize that Christ is Lord, but when it comes to the functioning of our lives, our functional authority is still me first rather than the Lord and his will. Look with me at at, uh, the book of James. Turn to the right in your Bible. Find James and chapter 4 because... James gives us a a really pointed warning. It's one of the things I love about James. If you're the kind of person who just likes people to not beat around the bush, you'd love James because he just gets straight to the heart over and over again. And in James chapter 4, notice that what he is doing, the context here, is he's warning us against worldliness. And he's not defining worldliness as simply the accumulation of stuff. Because sometimes that's what we think. As Christians, we say, well, that person must be worldly because they have this and this and this and this. They drive this and this. And they live in this and this. And that's, that's not the issue, James says. No, worldliness is a matter of the heart. Where does your affection lie? Where is your allegiance James chapter 4, look at verse 13. 
Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now let's think about this passage in connection to Luke 9. What is James confronting? Is he confronting people who make plans for the future? No. That's not the issue. Nothing wrong with making plans for the future. In fact, Proverbs has a lot of positive things to say about it. What then is he confronting? He is confronting plans that are made for the future without respect to the will of God. Plans that are flowing out of the arrogance of heart and boasting. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go in such and such a city, we'll invest in the stock market, we'll trade here, we'll trade there, we'll become millionaires by the time we're 35. It's the issue of the heart. Boasting, arrogance, pride, which he says is evil. What's the key correction then? The key correction is found in verse 15, which is humbly submitting all of your plans to the will of God. It isn't to have no plans and spend your entire life flying by the seat of your pants. But it does mean that when you prayerfully make your plans for the future, you hold them like this and not like this. If you have a white-knuckled grip on your plans for the future, pretty certain you have not willingly, openly said, Lord, this is what I think I'd like to do and this is what I think you're leading me to do. But whatever your will is, let that be done. Because that's what I want more than anything is I want to do your will. See, that's the heart behind verse 15. It's not like if the Lord wills, you know, magical uh, four words that all of a sudden sanctifies every plan we make. We're going to do this and this and this and this and this. Oh, if the Lord wills. It's like fairy dust is now sprinkled over my future plans. No, this is the heart. The heart of humility and surrender to Jesus. And when we think about who the Lord Jesus is, (laughs) he is the Son of God. He is our merciful Savior. He is our ascended priest at the right hand of God who ever lives to make intercession for us. He understands all of our suffering. He prays for us. 
He's leading us. He's guiding us. He's given us his spirit to dwell within us. Why would we want our will as opposed to his will? And yet sometimes we do, right? Because that's the rebellious nature of our hearts. We were all born with a me-first heart. That's why all of us, when we were little kids, said, me first, a lot. So we need the Lord to change our hearts. And then he wraps it up there in verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. What's James implying? He seems to be implying that it's possible in our pride and arrogance to make plans for our future that actually hinder us from doing what God has commanded us to do. Which takes us right back to Luke 9, doesn't it? Lord, let me first do this. Lord, I know you're calling me to obey you in this area, but first, pursuing obedience to Christ more than our future plans is what it means to follow Christ. And thirdly, notice, following Christ means to be more loyal to Christ than to your earthly family. Notice verses 61 and 62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. What's the next word? But. (laughs) Don't pray that way. (laughs) But how often we do. I will do this, Lord, but first I need you to give me a sign. I will obey your word, Lord, but first, like Elijah, I'm going to lay out a fleece. Which is another way of saying, what you've told me in your word isn't enough to obey. Now you've got to prove it to me another way. Which was actually an act of unbelief, not an act of faith, if you really read that chapter well in the Old Testament. I will follow you, Lord, But if God has spoken to us in his word, which he has, then we have his mind in written form. We have his will revealed to us. And we need to obey. I remember the first time the Lord asked for my obedience in this area. Karen and I were engaged. So this was around this time, 1985. And I had been saved the previous spring. The Lord was growing me, giving me a desire to serve him in some way. I didn't really know how. I thought I might be like a mean principal in a Christian school or something like that. Um, But I just knew that going to Bible college was probably the next step. And the Lord providentially led in different ways and opened our eyes to uh, this school in Kansas City that we had 
never even heard of before. And then as soon as we heard of it, all of a sudden God brought other people into our lives and kind of affirming, hey, this is a good place for you to go. It's like, yeah, but um, okay, we'll check it out. You know, I had never been outside of Wisconsin my entire life except one trip to Colorado for my brother's wedding. And um, so here we're going 500 miles to Kansas City to check out this Bible college. And um, Karen and I both had lists in our minds of things that we were asking the Lord to affirm for us. And um, so as we visited the school, and um, she stayed in the girls' dorm, and I stayed in the guys' dorm, and then we visited the married student housing, and we met some of the married couples, and we asked questions and heard testimonies of God's faithfulness. It was so clear and obvious that God was leading us. That, that we knew in our hearts that after our May wedding, we would be soon moving to Kansas City. But on the way home, Karen was driving, and I really was struggling in my heart. Because at that point, you know, I was a brand new believer, so was my sister, just providentially in the, in the miraculous working of God in bringing both of us to faith in Christ. And I, we both had this really heavy burden in our heart for our unsaved family members. And there was this wrestling going on in my heart. I can still feel it. Sitting there in that seat, driving down the road highway. Lord, but who's going to witness to them? If we move away, And I was just in my Bible reading. I opened my Bible right there in the car, started reading my scheduled reading for the day, and I came to the passage in Mark where Jesus says this. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he should receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. And I was challenged and affirmed at the same time the Lord, the Holy Spirit, just so providentially directed me to that passage of Scripture, and I sensed this peace just come over my heart to know that I need to just obey the Lord, and he's going to take care of everything else. So six weeks after our wedding, we packed up everything we owned in a 14-foot U-Haul truck, and with $400 to our name, moved 500 miles down to Kansas City to go to Bible college. And we still remember that Sunday afternoon when her parents and my parents and some of her siblings, having helped move us down there, they got in their cars and they drove away. She remembers it too. And we just stood there on the front porch of our little 300-square-foot first apartment, and we cried. 
We held each other's hands. We cried. And yet there was this peace that just overflowed us knowing we were in the will of God. And God just may do that in all of your lives in some way whereby you are faced with having to make a choice. Do I obey Christ? Or do I do what I think will make my family most happy? Again, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we dishonor our family members for no reason at all. That is sinful. But when we grow up and we become adults and we come to know the Lord Jesus, he may ask of us these kinds of things. Where by choosing him might mean losing out on some things with earthly family members. For those of you not raised in a Christian home, you probably can relate to this more easily than those of you who were raised in faithful, Bible-believing, Christ-honoring homes. That, that when God brought the gospel to you and, and saved you by his grace, that now you perhaps sometimes find yourself in situations where you have to choose between pleasing your family and obeying Christ. God will give you the strength to do that. And Jesus promises to reward you. But for all of us, we really do need to ask, where does our greatest loyalty lie? 2015, this month, Karen and I were here meeting you for the first time. And the Lord said, move again. This time you're going 500 miles east from Wisconsin. And it was, Lord, that's, that's your will. It's your calling. And this time we not only left parents, but we left adult kids and grandchildren. But, you know, following Christ is the greatest treasure of life. And all I can say is that if and when the Lord calls you to do difficult things like that, he's going to take care of you. He's going to bless you. Question is, is, that, is your heart ready for that? Parents, I think we need to ask ourselves this question. Are we ready to release our children into the will of the Lord? Even before we had kids, Karen and I decided our kids are going to be given to the Lord and wherever he takes them and however he uses them, that's his business. It's not always been easy. But we need to understand as parents that our children don't belong to us. They are a stewardship from God to be loved well and raised for the honor and glory of Christ and if by God's grace he uses all of that nurturing and admonishing in the Lord to regenerate them and bring them to faith in Christ and become followers of Christ, 
We must hold them like this, not like this. In your heart, parents, release your children to the Lord. God is doing something bigger in this world than your family. In case you didn't know that, I feel like I have to tell you that. He's doing something a lot bigger in this world than just your family. So don't make your family an idol. Serve Christ. Cultivate godly habits in your family, but not family-centeredness. Christ-centeredness. Are we raising our children with a love for something much bigger, which is the work of God throughout the world and the family of God? By God's grace, we function day to day with his strength, and in the end, he's the one who does the works of grace and we praise him for that one of the missionary biographies that profoundly influenced me a couple decades ago was the autobiography of John Payton the missionary that the Lord used to open up the New Hebrides islands to the gospel and in that autobiography Patton Uh, firmly believes that God called him to the ministry, but that part of that calling involved his father's encouragement and his father's prayers. And he said this, My father had a strong desire to be a minister of the gospel, but when he finally saw that God's will had marked out for him another lot in life, he recognized himself by entering with his own soul into this solemn vow that if God gave him sons, he would consecrate them unreservedly to the ministry of Christ. If the Lord saw fit to accept the offering and open up their way, it may be enough here to say that he lived to see three of us entering upon gospel ministry. That was just one example of how the Lord worked in one family, and that's not to say that's how God works in every family. It's simply to say, parents, is that our heart? Or is our heart to keep our kids as close to us as possible for the rest of their lives? Or are we going to trust God enough that we can entrust them to him and he may take them places that we weren't prepared for? But those are the ways he teaches us to trust. So that's my encouragement to you as parents. Just release your children to the Lord in trust of him. The point here in these verses and the promise I read from the Gospel of Mark is that the eternal reward of wholehearted discipleship far outweighs any earthly losses or anything that you and I could give up. 
far outweighs. Look back uh, one page, perhaps, in your Bible. Luke 9, verse 23. And here Jesus challenges us again. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up his cross means die to yourself. That's what Jesus is saying. Every day, die a little bit more to yourself. Your own self-centeredness, your own selfish agendas, your own capital S self stuff. For, reason, whoever would save his life, whoever will hold on to his life with white-knuckled grip will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake holds his life in open hands for the sake of Christ will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? We have one life to live. William MacDonald challenges us again. He says, Christ must reign in the heart without a rival. All other loves and all other loyalties must be secondary. So let me just ask you this morning, what is hindering you from wholehearted devotion to Christ. Wholehearted obedience to this new Lord. Let me ask it this way. What is your but first? Yes, Lord, I will, but first. What is your but first? Take it to the Lord. Confess it to him. And then surrender. Surrender your will. Surrender your plans. Surrender everything to him. Because he's going to do things in your life far better than you can and I can. We've got this goofy notion <laughs> that we can do a lot better job managing our life than God can. Let us repent of that and surrender anew to him. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for challenging us this morning. Perhaps some of us saw us in one of these three men or maybe even more than one of these three potential followers of Christ. And you have spoken through your word and you have shown us that uh, we are holding back from you that there are hindrances uh, in our hearts and in our wills to full surrender to you. And Father, we confess those to you and we pray that you would grant to us the simple childlike faith to believe that you really do know how to manage our lives far better than we do. 
Help us to stop yanking control out of the hands of the one who loves us best, thinking that we can figure things out. And instead, humbly submit to your word and trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.